Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay, and I'm joined on the podcast today by uh, Sue Grimmett, which is not a different person, not a different host, but the same Sue. Yes, same person, new name. New name, back to your birth name. Yes, in fact, a new name, but an old name. An old name. Um, Time had come to to go back to my birth name. Yes, so look, if you're here on the podcast, me introduce Sue Grimmett from now on. We haven't got a new host. We haven't axed Sue. (laughs) No, you're still here. given the door. (laughs) No, Sue has not left. Uh, It's just a, a new name and an old name, so. Um, welcome, Sue. Thanks, Tom. And today we are joined by Professor David uh, Clough, uh, an author and academic currently working at the uh, University of Chester as a professor of theological ethics with a focus on researching animals in Christian theology and ethics. Uh, he is the author of a two-volume work called On Animals, exploring this area, and our conversation today will be around uh, the ethics of, uh, I suppose, Christians and the treatment of animals I suppose titled Should Christians Eat Meat, which is an era we haven't covered before on the podcast. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see where we go today. David, thank you so much for, for making time. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Um, now, you, you do come from the University of uh, Chester in the UK. Um, just, I guess, as a starting point before we do move into, uh, I, I suppose, the theological element of this, uh, what is the vegetarian vegan element in Christianity over in the UK? Is it a prominent theme? Because in Australia, it it definitely isn't. No, I wouldn't say it's a prominent theme. I think it's uh, of growing interest. Um, I'm really looking forward, for example, uh, to take up an invitation to speak at the uh, Greenbelt Arts Festival, which is a big Christian uh, arts festival that takes place in August. Uh, but that's an invitation that's come this year rather than in previous years. And I think it, that's an indication of Christians re- recognising that uh, connecting uh, faith and animal issues is something that is uh, of growing importance Uh in the context of a, a wider culture mm. where veganism, vegetarianism is of increasing prominence in the UK. I suppose that is the, the, the point to touch on is that the connection hasn't really been made is that I have, you know, a number of Christian friends and a number of vegan or vegetarian friends, but there really isn't much crossover. Um, the, the, the link hasn't really been made by many people. And, and probably to begin with, from a personal point of view, I need to, to confess my own um, I suppose situation with this which is that I have probably somewhat intentionally avoided doing research on the treatment of animals you know and, and these things in recent years um, as more and more has come out because I, I think like many people I probably know that if I look into this there will be some guilt there will be some element of unease and it is such a big change to make to a diet I suppose you've, you've had your whole life uh, so you know don't if you if you're tuning into this thinking, oh gosh, this is a bit overwhelming. I can't deal with the idea of going vegan or vegetarian. Don't worry, you're not alone. I feel certainly the same. Are you? Would you be in a similar boat, Sue? Ah, uh, yeah. One of those relationships where you where you're conscious all the time, mm. and uh, you know, I try and buy carefully and I eat less meat. Um, but then you realise you lash out and go and grab a pizza and it had all all kinds of non ethically sourced, you know. <laughs> yeah. And so I have certainly that mixed feeling of guilt and mm. of. Um, unease with the way that i i go about my purchasing yes. yeah so so certainly don't feel you're about to be preached at you know for the next hour because uh because i suppose both sue and i are, are in that position um as well so I, I, it would just be a really interesting position to explore this area and i imagine that position is what you find um, most christians probably in that that almost that sense of if i looked into this i think it'd be pretty bad but you know there's a lot of other stuff going on i'm not going to look into it 
Is that is that um, frustrating to you? I suppose to, as a starting question that that people almost already know that this is a problem, yet don't want to know that they know. Is that frustrating? I think you're absolutely right. That is the situation we face. Um, in one sense, I don't find it a frustration in the sense that it does mean that people are aware this is a conversation we need to have. So it feels like when I'm opening my mouth on these issues, uh, I don't have to spend a lot of time making the case that this is something that's worth attention. It feels to me that there is a quite a widespread bad conscience about, about this stuff and the sense of yeah, we really ought to be paying more attention to this and we haven't been paying quite as much attention as as we should have been. And so I think part of what I want to do is reassure people that, that it's okay to be starting to be thinking about this stuff uh, now and that um, it's uh, in, to some extent uh, a scary thing to, to learn quite what we have become complicit in in relation to how animals are being raised and killed for food. But there are uh, the, the good news is that there are some fairly simple, straightforward steps we can take in in response to beginning to engage with this stuff. So on your own story, David, when did you become, I suppose, first a vegetarian, then a, a vegan? And was it a struggle for you at all to, to make that change? So I first became vegetarian when I went away to university at age 18. And that was the first moment where it was really clear to me that I was making my own deliberate food choices. And at that point, it seemed to me an obvious step to make, which I guess must have mean, meant that I had a growing sort of sensitivity to uh, issues of uh, animal ethics during my teenage years. I remember one presentation that a fellow uh, pupil at school made about animal research experimentation when I was aged 13 or 14. Um, I remember various encounters with animals, which I think may have sort of sensitized me to the issue. Um, and so when I was sort of going away and faced with the decision about, you know, what is it that you want to order? Uh, it seemed to me to be an obvious choice if I've got the option between choosing a food, uh, kind of food that is obviously engaged with suffering and killing of animals and making another choice, it seemed to me uh, an obvious point uh, that I would be choosing uh, a vegetarian diet at that point. It, it did take me a while to make the links with uh, dairy and egg production, and uh, we can talk about that because it's, it's not obvious to, to many people about why, uh, why you'd be concerned about dairy and eggs if you were concerned about suffering and, and, and deaths of animals. Um, but once you begin to realize the connections between those industries and um, the uh, industries that are killing animals for food, uh, that link towards veganism becomes pretty pressing. I suppose why this is an overwhelming um, thought for many people is if you rule out, you know, if you look at a vegan diet, you might be clearing out 70% to 80% of people's fridge and pantries. You know, you, you would be, this would be such a radical overhaul of most people's diets in the Western world that it's somewhat unthinkable. You know, many people might think, what am I, what would I actually cook tonight? If I went mm -hmm. vegan, mm -hmm. I don't know what meal I could make tonight. Mm -hmm. Was that a, a struggle for you at any stage along the journey? I think certainly um, the jump to veganism age 18 would have felt like a scary thing. I wouldn't have had a sense of, of, of how to do that. And it's interesting. It's So I was in the fortunate position as a university student to be in a catered kind of environment. And so I was asking someone else 
to cook food for me rather than me doing the cooking to start with. And it's, I think it's interesting to, to think about that as an option. There are co- plenty of contexts where we're going, where we have a choice of ordering vegetarian, vegan uh, food at a restaurant, say, or in, in other contexts. And so that might be a place uh, that many people could start in a friendly way, you know, seek mm. out a vegan vegetarian op- uh, restaurant or uh, a restaurant with vegan vegetarian options and begin to experiment. It's interesting you say that we'd have to ditch 70% of what's in our uh, kitchens because I don't actually think that's the case. So most meat eaters may be only getting probably 30% of calories from animal products. And a lot of calories would be coming from vegetables, from grains, you know, pasta, bread, uh, uh, all kinds of things. And so I think we can exaggerate the kind of change that might be required. And we mm. could begin to think, actually, when we look at our plates, um, in, in many cases, yeah, for meat eaters, meat would be uh, one important uh, and uh, part of the uh, diet that they're pretty committed to. But there's lots of other things on the plate that are already plant-based. And so the beginning to make a transition towards uh, reducing the components of animal products uh, might be less of a struggle than it might initially seem. So let's move into why this is uh, an inherently Christian matter to deal with, because as we've discussed, it hasn't that link hasn't been made by many people. There's, to my knowledge, at least no church I've been a part of has ever spoken about why we should look at having less animal products. I mean, when you stop and think for a minute, it does seem like an area that would make sense for, for Christians to move, but bizarrely that move hasn't really occurred yet. I think... Um, so you were even mentioning that you were trying to do some research before this episode, search some podcasts, and you couldn't find anything, really. Yeah, I haven't had too many conversations at all when it comes to animal ethics in Christian circles. It's mm. one of those things I've had. You can find lots of books on our connection with creation and um, with you know that wonderful book of Elizabeth Johnson's Ask the Beast, that, that dialogue between um, the origin of species and um, it's actually and the the Nicene Creed, isn't it? It's actually it's a beautiful book, uh, but yet when it comes down to specifically animal ethics, so I think the platform, the foundation has been laid, but I don't think we've extended that conversation very far into really looking at animals. And yeah, a quote of yours, David, is that you you write that Christians are currently acting in ways that completely disregard the status of animals as fellow creatures of the God we worship. Um, it hasn't been framed that way though so far why do you think it it at, like, jump hasn't been my why do you think it hasn't been framed like that historically uh, supposed to begin with but also um you know today as people become even more and more aware what was the link not being made i think there's lots of reasons for that but one of the obstacles in the road i think is that people have often uh associated Christianity, both both Christians and those outside the faith, have often associated Christianity specifically with the opposite. So have looked and seen uh, Christian religion as the kind of uh, faith commitment that would give uh, its participants permission not to be caring uh, about other animals. So Peter Singer, for example, uh, famous atheistic utilitarian Australian uh, philosopher, wrote this groundbreaking book, Animal Liberation, in the mid-1970s. And in that book, he said Christianity is the chief ideological root uh, undergirding our exploitation of animals. He, he identified Christianity as the, uh, the, the key problem. Now, I have had 
conversation and discussion with Peter on this issue, and I think he's actually wrong that Christianity is specifically um, undergirding uh, uh, bad treatment of animals, but he's right that Christianity has often been raided for justifications for carrying on with practice that is really quite convenient for us. So we can mm. we can abstract verses like uh, from Genesis 1, uh, God's giving dominion uh, to human beings, and we can say, okay, that means it's fine for us to carry on what we're doing in uh, modern industrialized agriculture without paying much attention to it. Um, but I actually think that's a bad, a bad reading. Um, and so I think Christians have, have, have tended to, whether, whether they've wanted to avoid the issue, as, you've, as we've already been discussing, I think Christians have wanted to sort of pin their hopes on some uh, you know, particular verses like that dominion one in Genesis 1, or the, permission, the explicit permission for meat-eating in Genesis 9 uh, after the flood, and say, look, that's why it's fine, that's why we don't need to think more about this. But the, the case I would, uh, that I'm trying to make with Christians is that those verses are a fairly small part of a much wider biblical vision uh, where uh, Christians are involved in the worship of the God of all creatures. Uh, and Genesis 1, for example, if you, you can't snatch that verse on domi dominion without realizing that a vegan diet is specified at the end of Genesis 1 as God's ideal for what happens when creatures are living uh, as God would want them. So we need to be embracing the whole of uh, the, our script, biblical and scriptural inheritance, not just being selective about the convenient verses that, that we want to pick up. I think that's really interesting in the way that that parallels so many other things where scripture is harvested in order to support a position and it's often to support a colonising position of various ways, you know, mm -hmm. colonising and the idea of being very anthropocentric, um, being, I mean, we've talked in the podcast before about um, the, the patriarchal patterns and the, you know, the, the centre of where power and control come from and you can harvest even things like slavery you could harvest scripture to say these are the reasons why you know and and you wouldn't say that to use slavery as an example that that scripture was the origin of, of slavery but many people who were in support of slavery harvested scripture for for verses that would support that position and say it was god ordained you know you can put a god gloss on anything and particularly i think we need to be inherently suspicious have that hermeneutic of suspicion all the time when it comes to who is this benefiting and actually you know it's not in my best interest or not in my in my preferred interests to read that way i'd much rather read in something else that suits me so has before, you know, 2019, looking historically, has eating meat, eating animals ever been really challenged by elements of Christianity? Have there been, I suppose, key Christian thinkers, writers who have challenged this previously, or is it quite a recent um, phenomenon? I think we've forgotten that dietary practice was actually a major part of people's observa observance of Christian faith through almost throughout the entire Christian history. Uh, and so... In the New Testament, we see arguments recorded between different groups of Christians who think their faith means different kinds of things for consumption of animals. So Paul is negotiating arguments between vegetarian Christians and non-vegetarian Christians. So this is an issue even within the New Testament. And then as time goes on, uh, when Christians are trying to think about what would be a holy way of living, say in relation to the early monastic movements in the fourth century, diet becomes a major part of how people think about the expression of faith. Um, and then as that goes on in relation to popular Christian um, uh, practice, 
Practices of fasting are really significant ways of expressing uh, faith, and that obvious that often includes non-consumption of animals. Even today, in many parts of the Orthodox Church, Coptic Orthodox uh, Church, for example, people are vegan for um, up, up to two thirds of the year if they're properly observing all the church fasts. So. While there is a sort of moment at the beginning of Protestantism where, which became sceptical about sort of food rules uh, as well as lots of other bits of church regulation, I think we need to realise that the space we're living in at the moment where food doesn't seem to be an issue for Christians is the odd uh, part of uh, Christian history rather than uh, thinking about Christianity as such being uninterested in the ethics mm. of what we eat. I suppose it's very easy to become a prisoner of the moment and think that how it is now is how it's always been. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also, you know, with uh, in the world today, a lot of eating is probably done quite unconsciously, which is quite different, you know, to, to what was observed with meal times in the past. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a fueling the body, grab what you can and go. Mm-hmm. Um, seems to be the, the the modality now. So even being mindful of what people are eating is a bit of a jump to make to begin with. Um, as a vague question. David, how would you frame to somebody who said to you, why is going vegetarian or vegan, how is this linked to being a Christian? And I know it's a really vague question, but I imagine it's one you get relatively often as you go around the place and speak. What would your, I guess, your um, one-page answer to that be? Mm -hmm. So one starting point, I think, is Christians are monotheists. That means they worship one God who is the God of all creatures. And so that means Christians understand themselves to be in, in one sense, fundamentally the same situation as every other thing that God has made. So Christians are creatures alongside fellow creatures. And that seems to me a really profound theological starting point, which we've not always uh, attended to the significance of. So if we're creatures among creatures, that means that we need to recognize that there are other creatures other than human creatures, more than human creatures, who are also graced by God through uh, God's creating of them and are also intimately concerned with God in God's providing for their, uh, their, their sustenance uh, day by day, who are intimately involved with their creator in relation to response to God and praise of God. The traditions we have in the Psalms make it abundantly clear that the whole creation praises God in its uh, being. Uh, So human beings are one part of this really diverse creaturely chorus of praise. And then if we go forward into the New Testament, while we've often told the story of Jesus in a human specific way, we've got really profound reference points for talking about God's work in Christ as a moment of cosmic significance. So in John's Gospel, in John 3.16, this verse that Christian sign uh, writers like so much sort of holding up at baseball games and, uh, and so on, uh, what does it say? It says, why did, why did God um, uh, uh, send uh, Jesus? Because God so loved not humans, but the world, the cosmos in Greek. The opening of the letters to the Colossians and the Ephesians say, what's God doing in Christ? God is reconciling all things in heaven and earth to God's self, making peace between all things uh, in heaven and earth. When Jesus is reassuring uh, fearful disciples about uh, their place in God's purposes, uh, he says, look, you know that not a single sparrow falls apart from your father. Therefore, be reassured, you're of more value than many sparrows. Now, we like to rush to the end of that, but without really realizing that that reassurance that Jesus is giving is dependent on 
the recognition of his audience that God cares even for a single sparrow. Now, I think that that way in which we recognize the, the participation of other creatures alongside us uh, in uh, dealings with uh, the God that Christians worship means that we can't see them in the same way again. And if you start to uh, put into contact this idea of God's radical concern, even with a single sparrow, with what we're doing, saying to broiler hens in industrial me methods of raising, it seems to me inescapable that this vision of an authentic, creaturely Christian faith has really radical implications for the animals we're currently eating. Um, and that might mean at least being attentive to how we're raising them, certainly eating a lot fewer of them. Uh, and for many Christians, I think we need, we need to think seriously about adoption of a vegetarian vegan diet. So for people who mightn't be, uh, you know, aware, because I think, because I think often this is such an, as, as we've discussed, such an overwhelming area to even think about changing. Um, you know, I don't think many people probably do look into it or, or when they're presented with facts you know i go to a vegan cafe often for an acai bowl which is a breakfast i occasionally have on the wall of this vegan cafe they have a lot of facts about how farm animals are treated and you know i'll admit i've been there going go there regularly for a year and i don't read the wall i don't mm -hmm. read the wall it's right mm -hmm. there and i don't read it mm -hmm. um so for for people like me mm -hmm. what is it we need to know mm -hmm. you know the, the harsh facts about how animals are being treated so the fundamental thing we need to understand is that the practice of animal agriculture has transformed radically in the last uh, 50, 60, 70 years. So the way our grandparents ate animals is not how we're eating animals today. And that's, that's a really, really important uh, thing to realize. So it seems to me that... Um, we're in bad conscience because we've kind of sleepwalked into complicity with systems uh, that are very strange and unfamiliar. Um, and so we could start with chicken. So chicken is the cheapest meat available in many developed nations uh, now. And the reason for that, you know, it didn't used to be. For, for our grandparents, uh, beef uh, was a cheaper food than chicken. The reason why chicken has become so cheap is we've completely reinvented chickens in order to make them very efficient units of human production. And so we took uh, chickens which were basically uh, raised for eggs and with, with meat as a side uh, product, and we've completely separated the kind of chickens we raise for eggs and the kind of chickens we raise for meat. So that means the chickens we raise for meat, which is the broiler uh, chicken I'm referring to, their bodies are now completely optimized to the astonishingly rapid accumulation of edible flesh. That means we could take a chicken where uh, formerly uh, growing, growth to maturity uh, might uh, take three, four months, uh, and then the chicken would have a sort of long life as a laying hen. We've now reinvented them so that they grow to slaughter weight in 35 days. So that's done by the astonishingly intricate system of parents and grandparents of those hens, uh, which are basically mutants. So there are, there are grandparents in that system that have no satiety uh, 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 gene. They can't tell when they're full. And so they're just eating constantly all of their lives. And that's the kind of thing you need in the mix in order to create the sort of modern broiler hen. So these are hens being raised in vast sheds 
with artificial day and night, automated water and feeding. The only human interaction with them is walking through once or twice a day to take out the dead. Um, and then at about 35 days, uh, they're gathered up by uh, and pushed roughly into uh, crates and shipped off uh, uh, down to uh, uh, places of uh, slaughter. Um, I visited one of these places in uh, northern England where the practice was delivering of 600,000 day-old chicks once every 40 days that would be raised in these uh, uh, bare, uh, windowless uh, environments until uh, you know, seven weeks, uh, six, seven weeks uh, of age, um, sorry, for, uh, 35 days, um, so around about five weeks of, of age and then be taken to slaughter. And I, I stood in the middle of one of those sheds and I, I held a chick that was 15 days old. Um, so just losing her fluffy yellow chick feathers and growing this mature uh, white uh, plumage. And I was just astonished by the idea that this chick is halfway through, this chicken is halfway through her life uh, at that point. And that is where the vast majority of chicken globally uh, uh, is coming from. It's the amazing economic success story. It's made this meat cheaper uh, than ever before, but at vast cost to the chickens whose lives have just become one tiny cog in uh, this machine. Do you know what a, a chicken's lifespan would be expected to be if it was on a farm living naturally, I suppose? Well, we need to interrogate naturally, of course, <laughs> yeah. because uh, very few chickens get to live out um, their life um, uh, without being killed at some point. So if chickens being raised for eggs, you know, are often killed when they're uh, laying uh, becomes uh, less productive. But um, a, ch a, a chicken being raised in a backyard uh, uh, for eggs uh, would have a life of, you know, a, a period of several years. Mm. And so the way in which we've completely reinvented this, this growth and this death, you know, we're sort of killing baby, baby hens that have been sort of raised as mutants in relation to the pace of growth. Uh, and that's a really strange uh, thing for for Christians who worship this God who cares about you know every the falling of every sparrow to be immersed in this vast practice uh, which has zero regard for what it would mean to respect these fellow creatures some people might say you know oh but I, I buy free-range chickens when I'm at the supermarket is you know that surely that's better surely that fixes the problem is it better or you know is it really just a marginal thing so I would be really encouraging of people to be looking for possibilities to make incremental changes. So I'm really glad when people are looking on the shelves, imagining the lives of animals behind the products that they see in the supermarket and making changes uh, as a result. So I don't know the Australian figures, but in the UK, about half of eggs that are sold at the moment are free range. Um, and so people are deciding I want to pay a bit more in order to give the chickens that uh, I'm buying from um, a, a better life. Um, so and that does make a difference. So um, in many um, free range operations, chickens have got much more room to move than they would do in the battery cages that are the sort of where the vast majority of the world's chickens live. So I'm all in favor of us being attentive to incremental changes that are benefiting uh, chickens. But it is the case that in uh, many parts of the world, uh, there are some uh, eggs being sold as free range where the environments are actually not very well designed. And so 
what is sold as free range can mean uh, an environment where chickens actually are spending almost all of their time inside uh, a barn, not completely unlike that the one where the broiler hens are living because maybe the entrances are not well um, designed and so it's quite hard for the chickens to make it through more dominant chickens uh, at the entrances or maybe the outdoor space is not well designed so it's not actually a very attractive place for chickens to live. There's not much cover. They might be fearful of predators. And so free range isn't the whole... Uh, isn't everything, but it is um, it, it is a start. The other thing that I think Christians need to be paying attention to in relation to laying hens is the fact that the consequence of us completely separating the kind of chickens we're raising for meat and the kind of chickens we're raising for eggs means, as you can imagine, once you start to think it through, the male chicks from the laying strains are redundant. They're no good for raising for meat because they're not optimized to live in this kind of broiler world. Um, they're no good for raising for eggs, uh, obviously. So what happens to the four billion male chicks from commercial laying flocks is uh, that as soon as they're sexed at a day old, they're killed. Um, now, to me, that seems really scandalous. And I can hear sort of gasps from audiences where I sort of give this bad news uh, when, when I'm speaking. And it seems to me if, if, if sort of animal agriculturalists had come to us 30, 40, 50 years ago and said, we've got this really cool idea for how to make chicken cheaper, but it does mean we need to kill all the males of the laying uh, hens, and that's done... Well, in the EU, one of the approved methods is putting them on a conveyor belt and being dropped into a live grinding grinding machine. Uh, else, uh, elsewhere in the EU, they might be gassed. In other parts of the world, uh, they could just be left in a, um, uh, a rubbish uh, sack uh, to uh, suffocate and, and, and die through uh, neglect. Um, and so that seems to me to be really scandalous. It may not be actually very easy to get a grip on what's wrong with that from a utilitarian point of view. Um, but I think from a Christian ethical point of view, it's really clear. There's a fundamental disrespect and disregard of creaturely life going on in that practice. And that's the whole of commercial egg production. And I think, too, that sense of only you only have a functional purpose as in relationship to human beings that you just have a function you're not and I don't think anything and when you talk about the the Christian underpinning of creation our understanding of how we understand of creation and the diversity you know and the extravagance of creation there is nothing there in creation that tells us anything is there for one specific soul function and 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 you know i think of that beautiful movie australian movie babe you know when babe gets the message from the couch you know pigs don't have a purpose you know and Mm -hmm. and i that that sense does not and and it's a gorgeous movie because it does put its finger on on some inherent um uh, very sad ways that we view animals and that, that we uh, have, have relegated some of creaturely life to just a function. Mm-hmm. I know we talk about a lot about Richard Raw on this podcast and I know he's just uh, recently released his book, The Universal Christ, and uh, the, one of the, the core themes of it is a Christian is the one who sees Christ in everything. Um, you know, very much this message of honouring the sacredness of, of all things, of all life. And so when you hear that for you to be able to have, um, you know, that, that chicken dish uh, that you had or you, you're baking and eggs in the morning, you know, there's four, was it four billion? Four billion, four billion male chicks. chickens are just being killed in that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that system can continue to go on. Um, these are exactly the sort of facts I've been avoiding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> 
and because because I think it seems obvious in a sense, um, you know, understanding what capitalism does, understanding what what this industry, this this ideology that we're all living in, what it does, um, it doesn't honor life in many ways. So it, it was a short leap to imagine this sort of stuff happens. In terms of how it's changed the world as well, David, I know uh, reading a piece of yours. That the the world we're living in in terms of wildlife today is drastically different from how it was not even that long ago in terms of uh, how much of the wildlife we we have in the world exists naturally and and you know to be part of of just its its uh, sacred life and how much exists solely for human street. Do you know what that those ratios are actually are? Mm-hmm. So there are different ways of coming at this. One of the things that really strikes me, yesterday I celebrated my 51st birthday. Um, in those 51 years, there's been a 60% reduction in the numbers of wild animals. So just in that short human lifespan, um, we've we've just had we've made an astonishing difference to uh, the ability of wild animals to be able to uh, flourish in in the world that we've we've created. Another way into this, it, which really shocked me the first time I came across it, is statistics put together by um, an academic called Vaclav Smil, who calculated that around about 1900, we'd so far expanded. Uh, domesticated animals, the vast majority of which are being used for food, uh, that the combined biomass, so you kind of get all the animals together and sort of weigh them, that combined biomass of all the domesticated animals was three and a half times more than that of all wild land mammals. So by 1900, the biomass of domesticated animals that we're using for food is three and a half times that of wild land, land animals. In the next 100 years, we nearly quadruple the biomass of domesticated animals, uh, and that is one of the chief causes for a halving in the biomass of wild animals, which means by the time we get to 2000, the biomass of domesticated animals is 24 times mm. the biomass of all wild animal, land animals. Even just chickens, the biomass of just uh, chickens, the chickens we're raising for f- food, is three times the biomass of all wild birds. So we've got to a point with the way we're using animals in agriculture that there is no space left for uh, wild animals. We're devastating wild animal habitats on a massive scale in order to make space for all these animals we're raising for uh, meat and dairy and eggs. Uh, And that seems to me a really shocking example of why this needs to become an urgent issue for Christians. It does sound like a blatant abuse disregard for for life and for creation when you put it like that um you know you 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 can't help but read the genesis account and through the the poetry and the language used uh, see the beauty of creation that is expressed in that account and how it's just been utilized in such recent times really on such a mass scale um solely so you can have a convenient meal at home it feels quite shocking to to think about I, i think something worth touching on david is that most most people i think you know, their, their earliest memories of animals are of deep animal love. And, and I think that most people would call themselves animal lovers. Not all, but most would. I remember being on a family holiday up near King Arroy in Queensland, which is a few hours out of Brisbane. And um, we were driving through the country and I didn't see cows often. And I saw the cows as we drove through the country. And I kept pointing out all the cows we'd look at. And then there was an awful smell that filled the car. <laughs> and I was like, what's that smell? And then mum and dad are like, oh, that's just the, the abattoir up here. 
and I could see the abattoir as we drove past. Mm-hmm. And being a young kid, I was like, oh, what, what's an abattoir? Mm-hmm. And I remember mum and dad telling me in the car, and I was just shocked as a kid. Mm-hmm. The, the, the child in me could not believe that this was happening. I, I, I had never connected the dots to that point in my life as to how I got the beef on my, my plate. You know? mm-hmm. And I was just absolutely blown away. And I think as kids, we probably would be, you know, if you went into a, a primary school class and you said these sort of stats... You would have kids not talking to their parents. You'd have kids in tears because there's something quite uh, innocent and, and primal about the child experience of this, which just knows how wrong I think it is. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is that makes us, you know, as we grow older, lose that uh, that love of all life and, and perhaps um, have l- learn the ability to disconnect the love of animals? Because I think a lot of people would say they're animal lovers and then still partake in these systems. Lose that connection between the love of animals and the treatment of animals. So I think it's really interesting to think about how this works for children, because I think the experience you describe is pretty much a, almost a universal experience. The sense of all the animal figures in the children's stories that we, you know, that we've been reading to, to children, and all the fluffy uh, animals that are, dec- you know, that are sort of around in the crib and the nursery, and then the uh, animals that uh, sort of pet and you know, in within the home or on sort of um, farm or zoo visits to to get the sense that there's a connection between the lives of those animals and what's being served up by your parents or guardians on your plate. I think the scandal of that is 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 close to universal. And then it seems to me to be, you know, what happens when you make that discovery and then have the people you trust most saying probably almost all the time, rather than, oh, that's a really good question we ought to think again, instead, no, it's, it's fine, that's what we've always done, that's what we always do, there's nothing to see here ethically, just carry on with uh, the practice and uh, to try not to, to pay much attention to the, 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 the abattoir connection. I think, I think that must be a fairly disorientating and demoralizing move for a child to learn, well, this thing that I thought mattered um, my parents uh, uh, and guardians are telling me it, it doesn't matter and that it's all okay. And that might be representative of other um, ways in which we're being inducted into the kind of social settlement of the things we're prepared to care about and the things we're not. Uh, and so, yes, as you say, connecting with concern for animals might be a, a reconnection with things we used to realise before we were socialised out of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think it's spot on that our children, that's the way we learn and we, we grow and we're kind of inculcated into that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter, nothing to see here. I also think uh, children have, we lose a sense of wonder because we get used to the functionality of things. This is the way the world works. This is the way it's always been. Things have value. You know, kids don't care about monetary value in that sense. Um, and the function and the usable purpose, you know, they are much more likely to recognise the sacredness, I think, of, of animals. I had, a, had a, a picture book as a child I remember crying over, and I wish I could remember the name of the creature now, but it tells the story of, of a little girl in Africa who used to see um, this, this horse that had zebra stripes on its rump coming it was a horse-like creature coming to um the watering hole and it's the story of the death of this last one and i used to sit and cry over them and, and, and i just and i you know you can remember the feeling and i and i think I, I wouldn't be so shocked now but that that shock that that creature and it wasn't because you know it, it was beautiful but it didn't have you know the, the the earth didn't didn't lose 
you know, on the surface, a functional purpose, but that's the way we, we yet we have inculcated children into functional ethics. And as we grow, we kind of take them on without realising and we lose the sense of the sacredness of everything and the extravagance mm. of everything. Something we've spoken about before on the podcast is this notion of, of what are the things we are complicit in today that in 100 or 200 years' time, people will look back and be like, how on earth did that pass? In the same way, we might look back at racism, sexism, homophobia, and, and think, how on earth did that pass? If we were chatting to someone from 150, 200 years ago, we might say, are you not aware of what's going on here? And you know, just you talking about this, David, gives me the feeling that someone in 150 years... God forbid there are people around in 150 years still, you know, in that sort of format. But someone in 150 years might be sitting at this table with us now and, and have a similar approach to this. Think, how how are you not seeing how inhumane this is? Um, do, do you see it as th- th- that central an issue? I, I really do. Um, I mean, I'm not a great... Um, I, I don't have a great confidence in sort of unrolling uh, inevitable social progress. So I don't necessarily expect that everything is going to get better. And we've got some recent examples in democracy in uh, this country and mine and the states where it doesn't look inevitable that things are just going to roll on and become better and better. Uh, so I don't necessarily um, have assumptions there. But I, I do think that... Uh, the developing realization of what we're doing in industrial animal agriculture at the moment is going to uh, become recognized as, as as more and more scandalous. Mm. I mean, we've talked about chickens. The ne- next on my list would be, the, in terms of things people need to know about, would be talking about pigs. Yep. Um, so pigs are remarkable creatures. In the 1980s in Scotland, they did an experiment where they took a group of pigs out of an intensive system and gave them access to parkland. And what they discovered remarkably was that they adopted a behavioural repertoire which was very similar to that of wild boar. So they would have an extensive territory, they would be marking the territory uh, carefully and uh, patrolling it, they would be developing particular friendships among the groups of uh, uh, pigs, uh, the pigs they liked uh, hanging out with. They were very careful about where they ate and where they defecated, you know, the pigs were being very clean uh, creatures, they spent more than half their time rooting in the earth as the thing they most liked to do. When the sows were pregnant uh, and close to giving birth, they would go off a long way from the other pigs, uh, maybe a kilometre from the other pigs, build a huge elaborate nest and only admit um, the the pigs that they were most uh, friendly with into that space because they were being very protective uh, of the pigs. And and, and pigs are the most astonishing socially intelligent uh, creatures. Uh, You know, if if people have dogs at home, Pigs have that kind of uh, social intelligence as dogs have. But the vast majority of pigs we're raising now are raised in in, in indoor bare sheds for uh, for their whole uh, lives where they have no opportunity to express any of those species typical preferred behaviors they can't root in the earth uh, they can't develop particular friendships i visited an intensive uh, pig farm in england recently for the first time and i found this sort of dark uh, uh, shed where 30 large pigs were crowded into this bare concrete sty they were kind of stressed they were scratched each other all their tails had been docked because uh, otherwise they would be eating each other's tails out of sheer boredom in these conditions. The sole enrichment was um, a piece of wood hanging by a chain for one lucky pig to be able to chew on uh, at a time and that's the environment where the vast majority of pigs uh, are being raised. 
Um, and so again, it seems to me really scandalous that just because of our preference for uh, pork and uh, bacon, we're prepared to inflict these horribly impoverished lives on uh, fellow creatures. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's bacon off the menu as well. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was. It's. It's. And you know, I, part of it is a joke, but another part of it does, I think, go to how unconscious so much of this is. Um, you know, because I, I think honestly, if you got if you got all of humanity, if you had all of us in a room, David, you know, for an hour and you went through this stuff, I think there'd be a vast majority who would change their ways. You know, I, I don't think many people in the way, you know, in hearing this couldn't go away and not change anything. Um, so I, I think what that suggests is that people just don't want to know. They just don't want to listen because it's, it's not nice to hear. Um, the, the next one, I suppose, to cover in terms of animals is probably cows because you mentioned the link you made between um, dairy, you know, between initially being a vegetarian, but then also deciding to cut out dairy as well um, and animal products as well. Can you just discuss a little bit about, you know, what, what cows are going through both in terms of the meat and, and the dairy side of things? Mm-hmm. So in one sense, uh, uh, cattle raised extensively and the vast majority are raised extensively sort of outdoors in Australia. Um, have a better life than the chickens and pigs that I've been describing, and and I want to, us to be attentive to you know the, these these kinds of differences. And it's also the case that you know some farmers are doing a really good job in raising uh, chicken and pigs in very very different ways, and I'd want uh, to you know applaud that and uh, draw the difference between. Um, uh, farmers that are really engaged in trying to provide a really good life for chickens, uh, pigs and so on uh, and um, the people who are operating these industrialised systems with, which seem to me to have zero regard for animals but dairy is a, is a really difficult uh, uh, case I think so, in, um, so the, the key problem in relation to uh, dairy is very analogous to the problem of uh, when you're raising hens just for eggs. So if you're raising cows just for milk, there's an obvious problem, which is what happens when you have a male calf. And so male dairy calves are uh, not very useful in relation to meat production because they're not the kind of animals that we're raising for uh, meat um, and are obviously not very good for giving milk. Um, and so they're redundant to the process just in the same way as male chicks are. Um, and so historically we've handled that in uh, different ways. Sometimes uh, cats, male dairy cows have been raised for uh, veal. Sometimes that's been done in a really problematic uh, way. In Australia, as I understand it, at the moment, there's not much of a market for uh, raising uh, male dairy calves in, in any way. And so most <coughs> of them are sent off to slaughter at five days of age. Uh, so we've both got the problem of you know, again, what seems to me a radical disrespect for life in operating a system where uh, the, all those males are redundant. Uh, but you've also got the additional issue there about a real uh, grief of separation, both for calf and for uh, mother cow. Um, and so if anyone's lived near a dairy farm when calves are being separated from their mothers, the sound is awful to uh, hear. It's a really grieving uh, lowing uh, that, that you hear there and that's a, a sound that we could, any parent could identify with. It's the, it's the sound of cows being aware that their children are being taken away. 
Um, and if we can begin to uh, develop a sympathy across a species boundary and recognize how much of our life we share with fellow mammals in this case, uh, I think we need to recognize that there's, there's some deep wrong being done in that mode of uh, uh, dairying. Um, in, in many intensive systems in the UK, dairy cows are no, longer, no longer get to graze grass and they don't even meet their calves before uh, they're taken away because there's certain worries about uh, disease uh, transmission. Again, there is better practice available. Some dairy farmers are allowing calves to stay with their mothers for, for months um, after uh, birth and uh, operating dairy systems that I think uh, give much more attention to what it means for mother and calf to flourish. But that's not the case in the vast majority of dairy systems. I remember being on a, a school camp um, in uh, regional Australia, um, up near Blackbutt in Queensland. Uh, my school sent us away for a month, and part of that month-long camp was we went, we did a, a like a hike, um, which we really went into the bush and, and camped in tents every night of the hike. I remember night three of the hike, we all woke up terrified at about four, three, four a.m. Because we heard that sound you're talking about mm. of the the grieving um, cow, and I, 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 we didn't quite know what the story was with that situation—if it was dairy or if the, a calf had died or whatever it had been—but we were all like, it was the most haunting sound I've heard in my life. And I remember the instructor we had on the camp with us I was sort of a bit desensitized to it, but just said, "Oh yeah, that's just a grieving. That's just a grieving cow." Um, but it, it, the the primal nature of that sound. I suppose has stuck with me for you know over a decade now. I, I can still hear it, you know, when I when I stop to think about it. And you know, there is something on a deep spiritual level in a way that does connect with you. Um, and when you think about how when you you put milk in your tea or coffee or whatever, that you are propagating that, that you are propagating that. It's quite a haunting thought to consider, really, isn't it? I think it taps into how we think of ourselves as human beings as somehow different and separate from animals. And yet if we're really going to embrace an evolutionary view of the world, then there isn't that hard and fast degree of separation, moment of separation. Sure, we may have something in self-reflection and self-awareness, but there's an awful lot of the time, I don't know if anyone's had a similar experience to me as going to a zoo. I remember an orangutan was up against the glass and looking into that orangutan's eyes and, and we were communicating with hands and with, and you, you become very aware that the degrees of separation aren't that great and we know how much DNA we share. I think surely we can also think about how much we might share in things like grief, loss, separation, relationship. I don't think it takes much for people who might have a household pet as well to understand that you know when you look your dog in the eyes you, you can see that you're communicating with your dog I mean um, it was only yesterday I was uh, I was saying something different and I mentioned uh, the, the words that we say when my dog wants to go for a walk and instantly he ran into the room excited and so so we know that we're communicating with animals we know that there is that connection to an extent it's a connection that is in a sense we don't quite understand almost, but it is certainly there and needs to be honoured. Um, interestingly, David, when I brought this up with a, a friend of mine, they sort of dismissed it by saying, yeah, but Jesus ate fish, so whatever. And I imagine you've probably had similar dismissals. What do you say to them? So I want to say a few things. I mean, f the fundamental thing I want to say is that we need to recognize that Jesus's context in relation to the consumption of animals was unrecognizably different to the context in which we're consuming animals today. So while 
I think there's important strands in Christian spirituality that would want to start from example of Christ. I think there are some areas where we shouldn't just jump straight from uh, Jesus's example to uh, present day. I mean, Jesus, um, according to our scriptures, chose 12 male disciples. And I think that's some in another example of uh, a practice that we shouldn't be emulating in the world as we uh, find it today. Um, and so the first thing I think we need to say is we need to be attending to our context of consum- consumption of animals rather than uh, Jesus's. Um, a second point is that it's striking that fish were considered to be an entirely different kind of creature than uh, poultry and mammals in the ancient world that Jesus was part of. So to me it's quite striking that while uh, Jesus is recorded as eating fish and um, uh, uh, even cooking it, uh, that's not the case in relation to um, any other kind of animal. Now it's almost overwhelmingly likely that Jesus, as an observant Jew, was uh, was a participant in eating lamb, say, at the Passover meal. Uh, but quite early on in uh, Christian tradition, there was some controversy about vegetarianism, including the question about whether Jesus was vegetarian uh, himself. Um, and I think we should just... Uh, so uh, the primary point I'd want to make is that... Um, we're, we're in a different uh, context, and perhaps uh, Jesus wouldn't have been happy to consume the products of broiler sheds and intensive pig production as he would have fish being uh, taken straight out of uh, Lake uh, Galilee. Uh, but it's also interesting that even within the New Testament, consumption of animals is un- you know, unexpectedly a controversial issue. Hmm. What would you say, Sue, to people who use, I guess, that one example of Jesus eating fish, which means God did it, which means it's okay, Pipe down. <laughs> what would you say? What, what are people missing on that? Oh, look, I, I think David's answered that very well. I think we're, we take things, we, we look at the context. We, we have been given responsibility and agency and thought and heart and soul and mind with which to make decisions today. Uh, and, and the spirit is always moving and speaking to us as well. And we need to be finding our own voice for our own time. And I, I th- it's often a cop-out, really, whenever we, we say, oh, but that didn't happen there or that, you know, it, it's it's an easy cut-and-dried way of, of that people's arguments run that take away the responsibility of each individual person to make ethical um, decisions that also, I think, uh, you need to open us up to where the spirit may be moving in the church at this time. It's also, I think, a helpful reminder that um, there's a danger of absolutism on this issue. So Jesus' consumption of fish is a really good defeater to an argument that it's always and everywhere um, for the whole of time been a sinful act to kill and eat an animal. That's not a position that I'm holding. I think for all kinds of uh, all kinds of points in human history and in many contexts today, the consumption of animals as a way of uh, getting adequate nutrition has been uh, essential. If you're a Siberian pastoralist following a reindeer herd, the amount of other uh, sources of nutrition is very, very limited. If, if similarly, if you're um, uh, a Maasai uh, pastoralist, uh, with, you know, heavily dependent on cattle uh, for for consumption. 
function uh, for, for survival, um, it seems to me that you know there's no ready alternative. The case I'm trying to make is where we do have choice about the kinds of things uh, we eat. We've got a really significant Christian faith-based reason for being attentive to what we're choosing uh, to eat. And so for me, uh, any advocacy of uh, significant reductions in consumption of animals or considering veganism, vegetarianism, um, that's a contextual um, act. It's not a uh, moral absolute. I think we'd love to cling on to moral absolutes and find them to make it safe, you know, for ourselves to say this is this is what I need to do. It makes life easy, and we just aren't given th- that that easy alternative of, of a, a hard and fast moral absolute. I think every situation, including this, is including where um, we've had cases in Australia where which has um, caused people distress of of um, vegan protests and things. You know, I think every situation um, we need to be aware of the complexity of all the issues. What are the what are what are the needs of people what what are um ethically what are all the dimensions of this situation going on i think our problem has been a lack of thought um but we don't want to flip from complete lack of thought into a a place of moral absolutes on any of this there's a common uh, misconception about vegetarians vegans that they're malnourished that they're you know a bit pasty they're weak you know frail these sorts of things david i'm sure you've you've heard them all um i I work with a, a vegetarian and he talks about how he still cops that quite a bit. Um, for, for people who might know, you, are you saying that the all of the nutritions that you need are very easy now in the world we live in today, in the Western world in 2019, to get in ways that have nothing to do with animal products? Yes. Um, but, the, but it is important if you're adopting a plant-based diet to be still thinking about good nutrition. And so... Um, if people were thinking about adopting a vegan diet, they need to think, um, first of all, uh, there's an issue about where you get your vitamin B12 from. So you can get plant sources uh, of supplements for, for that. Um, in the UK, many cereals are fortified with B12. I'm not sure whether that's the case in Australia or not, other, but otherwise it's, it's easy to supplement. Um, but you need to be smart about where you're getting your protein and where you're getting your vitamins and where you're getting um, other uh, the things you need for a, for a healthy diet. So um, it's, it's important to be paying attention to, to that. Um, but yes, it, f- f- uh, 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 moving towards a plant-based diet is very, very likely to be moving to a more healthy diet for most people who are currently consuming significant quantities of meat. Uh, uh, there's a few more areas I do want to cover, but just where we are on that particular point, if people, did, after hearing this, did decide, I really want to look into this and find how I can still get the iron I need or mm-hmm. the, you know, whatever the, the dietary requirements are, um, the nutritions are, I, I want to find a way I can look into this and still get them. Mm-hmm. What are some, do you know of some good resources, some websites people can go to where they can find, hey, here are menu suggestions. Here mm-hmm. is every, like a bit of a, ha- what you need to know about it. Because I think that is a concern for a lot of people is you're talking about an overhaul of some elements of their diet without them really knowing how to do it or how they're going to make sure they still get what they need. Yeah, so um, the the resource that I'm most familiar with and would, would trust very highly is uh, Vegan Society in the UK. I'm not sure if there's an Australian uh, equivalent, uh, but they have excellent uh, in- information about uh, nutrition that people could uh, pick up and, uh, and, and look at, as well as lots and lots of uh, vegan recipes to try. That reminds me to say, if people are thinking about uh, first practical uh, shifts in this, I would think about 
thinking about positive things to try in terms of new kinds of foods rather than necessarily uh, uh, you know what have I got to give up so if you're if you're unsure about a starting point Google vegan recipes find the favorite things you like to eat um, and find some really nice uh, you'll find it really easy to find lots of vegan recipes uh, for for things you like to eat Uh, and just experimenting with trying uh, really new tasty plant-based foods I think is a good way of uh, getting started on this. And we might touch a little more on that just as we do wrap up shortly, but a few more things to to cover. Firstly, um, you know, we've gone through a few different animals, but also live exports is another um, thing you, you did mention is worth discussing on this matter. Yeah, I mean, live export is a specifically... Um, Australian issue in relation to um, animal welfare. Not that Australia is the only country that exports uh, live animals, uh, but it's a very large part of that trade. And uh, about a million sheep and cattle are exported from Australia uh, each year. The sheep tend to go to the Middle East, so they have a long sea journey, uh, perhaps up to about 25 days, uh, where they're on board ships in Uh, very variable temperatures so uh, temperatures on board ships you can imagine on a journey from Australia to the Middle East can get very high up to 40 degrees uh, Celsius Um, so there's a real concern about the welfare of animals uh, on that journey there's kind of acceptable sort of death rates for the for the industry because they know that these things are going to be uh, bad for the animals but also just the stress on the animals uh, that that make it is significant and then animals are subjected to very uncertain certain uh, welfare at slaughter in uh, Middle Eastern countries and where the cattle are going uh, to uh, Indonesia, uh, Vietnam, uh, China, uh, a shorter sea journey, but also this issue about welfare at slaughter. So I know that's been on the radar of many Australians. Um, Live export was suspended for a period in Australia because of concerns about animal welfare, but um, that's been uh, restarted. It's still not fixed. It's a really, really significant issue for uh, for the experience of uh, sheep and cattle um, who um, are subjected to these really long uh, journeys and it seems to me a really obvious uh, positive step would be to uh, rethink and prohibit uh, the stress that that puts on animals. Speaking of an Australian context you, you've also mentioned that colonialism is something to to look at in context this attracts the price and people how that plays a role but but how does it? So I'm just getting up to speed on this, but on the way from uh, England to Australia, I read I was recommended to read Bruce Pascoe's book, uh, Dark Emu, and that was really striking uh, to me because it turns out that domesticated animals uh, play a significant role in uh, the colonisation of Australia and the displacement of Aboriginal peoples. Bruce Pascoe makes the point that... Uh, the way that uh, the colonists introduced sheep uh, was basically to follow sheep herds as they uh, went across Australian territory. And that meant that these new animals that don't belong, obviously, uh, in, in Australia, were disrupting the, the environments that Aboriginal peoples had been uh, living within for 60, 80, 100, 120,000 uh, years um, uh, in relation to the evidence uh, we're discovering. And suddenly this new animal disrupted all of that uh, system. So the sheep were eating plants in a way that indigenous animals didn't, so uh, having very significant impacts on on uh, um, 
the plants that were growing. They were also compacting the soil in a way that changed its fertility. And so there's a really striking graphic in the book that shows um, the pre-colonial um, uh, grain belt in Australia, which goes right across the middle of the country, the kind of um, areas that we now have sort of dismissed uh, uh, plausibly as, as desert or outback, that used to be major grain production, uh, production before the sheep got there. Uh, and the sheep, because the sheep were going ahead of the colonists, it's almost the case that the sheep were destroying the environment even before the colonists got to see it. Uh, and so bringing these animals and kind of re trying to reconstruct struck this particular pattern of sort of English uh, domesticated animal agriculture into this inappropriate Australian context was a really significant part of what made life unsustainable for Aboriginal peoples in Australia. Yeah, I went and heard Bruce Pascoe speak at the recent Narelle Oliver lecture um, in Brisbane and you know he started off talking about the hermeneutic of doubt actually he just phrased his whole lecture around doubt and saying doubt what you've been told you know doubt you know I certainly grew up going through school being told that Aboriginal people were only hunter gatherers that they you know we, we would our history lessons considered consisted of going out and creating kind of gunyas with sticks and bits of bark and completely neglecting the rich history even of, of agricultural practice was you know it was never part of our understanding and what you're describing there David of, of having the the sheep and cattle were moving through and it's only some of the early explorers records that show up the fields of grain that Aboriginal people had been using from 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 grains that that grew naturally that they'd been harvesting and using and working with the land things like kangaroo which eating kangaroo kangaroos don't tread down the earth don't you know and how many native species have we lost in this process of and domestication of animals has a huge part to play australia had so many um such diversity and species that were quite unique because of our island nature and and so many have been destroyed because of domestication hmm. talking about the environmental impact though it's not necessarily just the species we've lost uh there, there were recent studies which um you know I, I know that in my family made quite a splash uh talking about how much particularly red meat i think was this particular study how much uh, of each person's individual carbon footprint came from red meat um specifically and how if you just eliminated red meat from your diet I can't remember the exact number, but it is a, a whopping amount of your personal greenhouse gas emissions would be reduced. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the, the I guess, the environmental reasons? Because I know we've spoken a lot about the, the moral ethical reasons, which are compelling, but there are environmental reasons as well. Yeah, so globally, um, raising livestock accounts for about 14.5% of carbon emissions. Uh, but has been largely absent from most uh, climate uh, strategies. So probably most people think when they're thinking about uh, climate, they need to think about uh, use of car, they need to think about um, how um, buildings are heated, they need to think about flights, but diet turns out to be one of the major contributors to uh, 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 carbon emissions. Um, and so therefore something that we can do something you know uh, fairly fairly easily uh, about but it's not just um, uh, carbon that's a problem environmentally for animal agriculture animal agriculture in many parts of the world creates significant local pollution issues um, there was just a report uh, recently 
that monitored antibiotic levels in major world rivers uh, and found that antibiotics um, from animal agriculture um, had leached into um, those uh, aquatic systems and so were having significant impacts alongside nitrogen-based fertilizers and so on in terms of how uh, life within those um, uh, watercourses uh, was affected. Um, antibiotics is, then makes us realize that this is actually an issue about human welfare as well because uh, the way we're doing animal agriculture is also a huge problem in terms of human well-being. So because we've run out of space to graze animals in most parts of uh, the globe, we need to grow massive amounts of crops to feed to animals. So globally, about 80% of agricultural land is devoted to livestock. About over a third of global grain production is fed to livestock, which is an astonishingly inefficient thing to do to, because you could get, only get about 8% of the calories uh, from grain if you feed it to animals and then eat the animals compared to eating the grain uh, directly. So this is a really significant just human food security uh, issue. But we're clearing major parts of rainforest, either to uh, to allow for grazing of animals or to grow the corn that we're then and, and grains that we're then feeding uh, to livestock. So the complex interrelationship between uh, animal welfare issues, uh, environmental issues, and human welfare issues in relation to what we're doing in this mass animal agriculture, um, you know. It's just astonishingly striking. If you care about any of those things, you ought to be really concerned about what we're doing in animal agriculture. It's interesting. Also, the, you're alluding to the fact that global poverty, that when that when so much food, so much grain is going into animals, and yet how, and yet so much of the world is hungry. You know, how can we better be using the resources? You know, and for Christians not to be a, have a stake in this, mm. not to be concerned about the world's poorest people. You know, we, we just can't close our eyes and pretend this isn't our issue. Well, it's, it is a really important point. This isn't just, you know, if you love fluffy animals, don't let them be in pain. I mean, obviously, that is, a, that is a massive part of it. And I think for many people, that's all it needs to be. But this has implications that are so extensive and really impact every part of our life on this planet. Um, maybe, you know, to, to kind of suggest where the hope is coming on this David, what has there been a significant boom in the past decade, twenty years? I suppose in moving towards vegetarianism, moving towards veganism worldwide that you're aware of. Has has there been a, a popularity increase that that you know of? So globally, consumption of animals is on the rise. <laughs> so sorry for that bad news. So we we are still on a trajectory to taking more and more animals into these intensive systems. Um, and with with dire impacts on the animals, on humans, and on the environment. So there are there are signs of hope in in many countries. Uh, veganism, vegetarianism, or meat reduction um, is becoming uh, of increasing interest. In the UK, uh, maybe a third of people uh, are saying that they're either vegetarian, vegan, or trying to reduce their uh, meat intake. Um, so. Um, I'm optimistic that that is a movement that will continue to grow. But in terms of turning round this tanker that's kind of steaming uh, in, 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 in the direction of increased uh, consumption, that's going to take some time. And so Christians being, becoming alert to this issue and deciding that this is an issue that matters in relation to Christian faith commitments and making this a topic of conversation in local church communities. I'm really keen that people think of this as a, in, as a corporate response rather than just an individual one. Let's think about 
the way ways in which our churches are serving uh, food. Let's have conversations together about what we could do together in relation to uh, this kind of agenda. This seems to me to be a really important thing for uh, Christians to, to take up uh, uh, together just now. So I think you've mentioned many times on the podcast before how one of the responsibilities of us as followers of Jesus is to, to speak up for those who don't have a voice. And on this matter, I mean... How many more do we need to say? You're speaking up for, obviously, the animals, but you're speaking up for the, the people who maybe are in poverty. You're speaking up for the planet. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, people who, a lot of players in this game who don't have a voice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and the interconnection of ourselves, recognising that even those of us that do have a voice and those of us that do have buying power um, are actually our lives are affected by those including the animal those who don't have a voice you know we are their fate is inextricably caught up with ours and we haven't we are only beginning to realize it i think certainly in terms of the planet we're beginning we're being forced to realize our interconnection with just just the earth but i think our interconnection with all living species uh, and the complexity that David's been alluding to and how that affects human communities is, is something that we have to get our head around. And that's something that, that Christianity, I think, in following Jesus, we, we go in aware of the sacredness of life, for starters, the sacredness of all life. And I think we, we talked about going back to childhood. We don't need to dig very deeply to know that that's a truth. Mm. There's a sacredness to life that deserves to be protected and things like the extinction of species are, are terribly tragic uh, warning signs along the way to the fact that we've lost our sense of how connected we all are. So I suppose in closing then, David, I you know I started this conversation by saying that I imagined if I knew the facts, I would want to make a change. I now know the facts and I want to make a change, obvious. And I, I expected that would happen. I was having, a, I was having dinner last night and I, I joked to my parents, uh, but it wasn't so much a joke. I said, this may well be the last time I eat meat because I know what I'm doing tomorrow morning. I'm doing this podcast. And I think I think it's going to be unavoidable once I've done the podcast. Um, yet the idea of right now saying, all right, I'm a vegan, you know, committing to, all right, vegan, off we go, is quite a daunting thought. As I imagine many, many people who've listened to this at this stage of the conversation might be feeling like, I really want to do something. I need to do something different. But far out, like, vegan, isn't that so, that's drastic? Um, so what would what would you recommend is something people could do? Let's say they're, they're driving home from work right now. Right now, today, what's a change? What's the start of a change people could make that could actually make it start the journey to making a real difference? So I'm really in favor of first steps and the value of incremental change in this area. For some reason, food ethics in particular um, often functions so that the perfect becomes the enemy of any change. People, so, so for some reason, people think, well, because I can't see my way to going vegan uh, by dinner time um, uh, for the rest of my life, I, I, I can't see a way to make the value of any change at all. So I'm really keen to um, uh, help people th- sort of avoid just rushing to labels and instead um, think about, well, what are step- first steps I could take towards making my diet more climate friendly, more animal friendly, more um, human well-being friendly. And that's just a shift as a transition towards eating uh, more plants and paying attention to where animal products that we still consume uh, are coming from. So in terms of what to do for dinner, um, 
we could think about thinking about the kind of recipes uh, that you like to cook and think about possible substitutes you could make for some or all of the animal products that go into them. So uh, you could be um, in a uh, in a, uh, a Mexican food, you could be having more beans and uh, not so much beef. Um, for uh, the next day, in, in relation to breakfast, you could be looking at uh, oat milk or soy milk in, in, instead of dairy milk. That's, a re that's becoming an increasingly easy um, early substitute, I think, in relation to reducing the animal intensity of uh, uh, diets. And then, as I say, have a look for the kinds of things that you really like to eat um, and the way that that could be done within uh, a, a vegan diet. Um, but don't feel like it needs to be uh, everything all at once. So maybe think about, well, um, maybe I could make breakfast uh, a vegan meal by a substitution of a non-dairy milk for my cereal or uh, whatever you like to eat. Or maybe you think, well, well, lunch wouldn't be such a big deal if I had um, uh, hummus or uh, avocado or uh, something interesting for, for in my in my sandwich. Um, or you could think about, well, maybe I'll try uh, vegan for one day a week. Um, or maybe the time uh, we get, when we get next year around to Lent, I'll try uh, uh, adopting a vegetarian or vegan diet for Lent. I'm really in favor of kind of experimentation mm. that begins to shift habits and begins to uh, make clear that this isn't one monolithic, really scary thing. Uh, we can make uh, small shifts and experiment with uh, changes that are making uh, our uh, uh, diets uh, more responsible for for me it's th there's a real sign of hope here which is that if we think about what are on our plates um, and what we're putting in our mouths that's an opportunity to think about our relationship to the wider creaturely uh, world you know these plants and these animal products have been gathered up and are presented to us for consumption they we're becoming what we eat in relation to eating uh, this you know th th this range of things and that means that this ordinary practice of eating can become a spiritual practice again, in which we can recognize our connections with this creaturely uh, world and just begin to sensitize, sensitize ourselves to the patterns of food production uh, and the implications of what we're eating for fellow creatures. And you'd think if anyone should have an idea of we are what we eat as Christians, then we, we have the Eucharist is the start of where we sit there and, and we have God who says, you know, this is my body, this is my blood. And surely we can see some of those sacred parallels also with what else is on our plate. So I suppose that is the, that's the message is, you know, you don't necessarily have to become an instant vegan, but just start thinking about this um, is probably the best place to start. And I think that's a, a gift you've given to me today, David, and I hope to many of our listeners as well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great to be with you. Thanks for the conversation. And we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.